Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of best-selling author and award-winning environmental reporter Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida, where, Craig, it, it's cold. What happened? I know. I know. I'm having, to wear, I'm having to wear socks and my flip-flops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got a, a, a cold streak uh, in Florida with some very uh, chilly temperatures for the first time this fall. But it feels good, and apparently the, the cold weather has energized the uh, governor because he's come out of hiding. Uh, yes, yes. I hope he didn't see a shadow. That to go back in. <laughs> I, I was, I was thinking. You know, if if Governor DeSantis comes out and sees a shadow, does that mean fifty thousand more coronavirus deaths, or Ooh. we're all in good shape? Uh, yeah, let's not joke about that. No, <laughs> he he's been in hiding. Where's he been? What's he been doing? I haven't seen him since really before the election. His staff said, well, there was speculation he had coronavirus, but his spokesman Fred Tickelow said that was not true. <laughs> so a reporter said. You mean he's just hiding out because he doesn't want to answer questions about the election? And Piccolo said, well, that could be one one interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> he says he was getting ready for the distribution of the vaccines, which, of course, are not ready for distribution. So mm-hmm. take, it for what, take it for what it's worth, but he's never been the most press-friendly governor we've had, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, he, he uh, made a public appearance uh, about a week before this episode publishes, uh, essentially saying that we're good on coronavirus, no mask mandates, no additional mm-hmm. measures. The cavalry in the form of a vaccine is on the way. And it's difficult to uh, have a lot of, of faith, I would say, in that uh, statement from uh, where I sit. And you, in in particular, on, on Twitter and on social media, and you can follow Craig on Twitter at Craig Times on Facebook at Craig Times, and I uh, encourage you to do so. You have been highly critical of his response or lack thereof from when coronavirus began. I just, I, you know, I have friends who died from it, and so you have to forgive me if I'm a little uh, been out of shape at the lack of action. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, he, he keeps saying mask mandates don't work. Well, you haven't tried them, so. <laughs> you yeah. know, and and hey, we've mandated seatbelts. They seem to work. So, yeah, and that's the, what's it's the funny, difference? Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because that's what I keep coming back to. When all these people talk about uh, civil liberties and the Constitution, and and that's all fine and good and imp- important. But there are any number from drinking age requirements to you can't drink and drive to seatbelts to construction workers have to wear helmets. There mm-hmm. are any number of ways in the interest of public health that the government has intervened to say, you know what, for the good of the people, we're going to take this decision out of your hands and and make you do this. I don't see how this is any different in the near term here when we're dealing with a, a pandemic that is killing now uh, thousands of people across the, the country every day? Well, and we've hit, we've hit the one million mark as far as infections in Florida. The positivity rate is going up, not down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and yet we're doing absolutely nothing to try and stop it except waiting for the vaccine, which, yeah. you know, uh, who knows how long that's going to take until it gets to people like you and me who are, you know, we're not first responders. We're not in a nursing Mm -hmm. home. Well, and according to Trump, it was supposed to be here by election day. So we're uh, (laughs) way over a month past that. And, you know, DeSantis is a Trump. I'd like to uh, speak to the manager about that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not going to hold my breath that it's going to be here by the end of the month. Hopefully it will be. What, What astonishes me, perhaps more than anything else about this, is top down and 
this is going to sound political because it involves all Republicans, but those are the people who happen to be holding the office. From President Trump to Rick Scott and Marco Rubio, our senators, to DeSantis, the governor, to the mayor in Jacksonville, where I'm talking to you from right now, I have not seen Lenny Curry as one bit of empathy, one ounce of sympathy, any sort of attempt whatsoever to try and console the now, like you say, million victims of infection, but thousands of deaths. There is no empathy, sympathy, care, concern whatsoever from any of these people. It's all about the economy, the economy. How about a little human compassion for all of the people who died? And I don't care if they died when they were old. If they were 94, they might have lived another six months. That's still a loss. Okay, if they were 85, they might have lived another five years. Yeah, they were old. Yeah, they lived a full life. They weren't kids, but it's still a loss. And from Trump to Curry through DeSantis and all of them, I haven't sensed one bit of empathy. And as a human, regardless of political affiliation, that astonishes me. And yet it worked, if you think about it, because they Republicans won you know, Trump won Florida, and um, and by by what I guess you'd call a Florida landslide, mm-hmm. you know, almost almost four percent, and then uh, and Republicans actually made gains in the legislature. Yeah. So would, but that I, lack of empathy is working for them, so I guess they're going to stick with it. I guess, yeah. I mean, clearly, a, a great number of people just don't care uh, because if they did, um, there would be more heat on DeSantis to speak more than once a month, and there would be. Uh, a greater fallout from the total lack of visibility and total lack of concern any of these politicians are showing for the great number of people uh, who are dying. And I don't know when politicians became totally divorced from humanity, but it would seem to be a very simple, kind, meaningful gesture for the president to come out and say, I feel bad about this. Well, remember, uh, Brad Parscale, his campaign manager, and a Florida man, I hasten to add, uh, said in a recent interview on Fox that he thinks that's what hurt Trump. That's the reason he lost the election is because he failed to show empathy for the victims of the pandemic. Yeah, so, and, and and despite the— so Congratulations, you're on the same page as Brad Parscale. Well, <laughs> yeah, um, but, you know, despite the electoral landslide, you know, when you parse that down state by state, it was razor thin, and, and, and I have heard similar analysis that—, that Trump really lost not so much on anything he did or didn't do from the coronavirus, but just being so obtuse to it, almost uh, acting as though it just isn't there and doesn't exist. And we're not even going to, to, to try and give lip service to the problem. Uh, a well, remarkable. Well, a remarkable well, remember, it was supposed to go away in April. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> and it was supposed to go away after the election. Neither of those have happened. Moving on. Our guest this week is a Florida treasure, landscape photographer Clyde Butcher. You can find him online at ClydeButcher.com, Facebook and Instagram at Clyde Butcher, one of my favorite Instagram follows where he shares many of his gorgeous photographs from around primarily South Florida, the Everglades, that area. He has galleries in Venice and Achope. Clyde, you didn't start out to be a Florida landscape photographer. How did you get How did you get started? Well, actually, I, I got started back about eight years old, and uh, my folks took me out to some of the national parks 
I was shooting with a uh, twin lens reflex at 10. When we moved, I moved to California. We started a business up selling landscape photography uh, to decorators. From there, we got into picture clocks. I don't know if you remember the picture clocks. Oh, yeah. We were the largest clock manufacturer in the United States. Wow. And we sold that, came to Florida. Now, when I w- we were in California, we actually lived on a sailboat. We had made a trip to Mexico with our 35-foot Coronado, but we wanted a smaller boat so we could trailer across the country because everybody's talking about Florida. What year was this? This was uh, when we started building the boat. I think it was uh, 75. Oh, wow. So we came across and bought the boat over here to Florida in, in uh, 1978 and took a three-month trip around went to the Tartugas <laughs> and Bahamas. And then we went back to California and came. then we came back in 1980 for per- being permanent because we loved the sailing here. But I didn't see anything here to photograph. It was huh. flat. Where's Yosemite? Where's the mountains? You know, <laughs> it's a different so, landscape. <laughs> That's for sure. A whole different landscape. I call this a biological landscape, where out west is more of a geological landscape. So it was 1982. I saw the Dolly Dolly Museum just opened up, Dolly, and uh, I saw these little crazy pictures. So I started doing some kind of Dolly-esque things with mm-hmm. my photography for a year. Then I decided, well, and I'm shooting in color. You have to realize that was in color. So I was shooting in color in California, out west. So I did that for about a year. And I said, well, you know, the beaches here are kind of pretty. So I started shooting in color of the beaches. And then we were doing art shows with my out west work and some of the Florida work, some of the beaches. We were going to a uh, art show in uh, Winter Park on 27, and we saw Tom Gaskin's place. It was uh, a fish-eating crook. He had a sign out there. He says, if you... Your husband doesn't want to stop, take your shoe off, and beat him in the head. <laughs> yeah. She threatened. The old Cypress Knee Museum, yeah. So I stopped, and uh, Nikki loves the curio. She loves these, uh, you know, real Florida places. And Tom could see I was getting a little bored. And this was in 84. And he says, you know, there's a, we have a boardwalk back there. Because, you know, I'm in California. I've seen the gator pictures of gators and snakes, and I didn't want to get in the swamp. So he was a boardwalk. I said, oh, that sounds good. So I, I took off, went back, and discovered it was a boardwalk, about 12 inches wide. <laughs> it wasn't wheelchair accessible, I'm he, sure. He never promised it would be more than one board. <laughs> and they were, like, nailed to the trees, and uh, it was pretty shaky. But I was able to actually got off the road and got into the swamp. And I got to the end of his boardwalk, and it was this beautiful scene. And I said, wow, this is Florida. I didn't realize that there was actually there was a Florida here. So the next day, I actually came back with my camera and did that was my first photograph was Tom Tom's place at Fishing Creek, Cypress Dean Museum. So I started shooting color. Next week, actually, I I met Oscar Thompson. Oscar is a fifth generation Floridian. One of his uncles was Claude Kirk, uh, Colonel Henry Henry County. Touch Brown was his uncle. Oh wow, the the famous gladesman. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oscar was more of a gladesman than he was. Todd was more of a uh, water-oriented person, whereas Oscar was more into the glades. He took me out to Big Cypress. I met him, and he had a little photography studio, and introduced me to Big Cypress. Between those two events, meeting Tom Gaskin's place and meeting Oscar, I fell in love with Florida. So I started photographing, because this was in color. I photographed from 1984 to actually just through 85. And I was thinking, you know, everybody, I was doing art shows and everybody was very excited about the work. But 
phone is so colorful, it's almost gets to the point where it's kind of, you don't see the forest before the color. So I was thinking about going back to my black and white roots back in the 60s. I think I, I did a show at Winter Park. I put a couple of my black and whites up and they sold. I said, well, that was kind of interesting. And then that summer in June 15th, our son was uh, killed by a drunk driver. And that's when I decided that I was going to go to black and white because I thought it was a better instrument in dis- discovering Florida. People could see it better. You don't, you don't get the color doesn't get in the way of if you see blue sky, you look at the blue sky and green grass, you know, you know, in fact, you got so much green, it's almost like puke. So I took all my color work to the dump, oh which is about $400,000 of work, frames, glass, prints, mats, everything, and watched the machine run over it all. Oh. I saved the negatives, though. I didn't, I didn't throw the negatives away. So I, then I bought a 8x10 camera and started photographing Florida in, in black and white. That was in, in sept, I guess it was September, I started photographing in black and white. And that's some of my best photographs I've ever taken in black and white with those first first experiences because I was just out there, you know, it was kind of a healing period for me. I was going to ask you what, what role your, your grief played in making yeah, your art. It was really significant because when I was shooting color, I, I would say, okay, this is going to sell. I'll do this and this and that will make it sell. When I started doing the black and white, I just wanted to photograph things that would explain the Everglades to people to get feeling that they could see what it was all about. It wasn't about sales because I, I figured I wasn't going to sell anything. The people selling black and white in the art shows were, you know, I'd be doing several thousand dollars in color and they would do two or $300. So why not just do what I thought was right? And the first show I did actually was in uh, late November and my sales were as good as my color sales. I got first place. I got a couple of purchase awards. So Nikki and I said, well, this is a freak. <laughs> and so it has been a freakish ever since. The black and white <laughs> seems to bring out the textures. Well, you can see all the texture. You can see the, the grain of the leaves, and you can see the bark of the trees, and, and the, the skies are beautiful because, you know, what's important in, in nature is everything. And that's why I, I say my black and white gives a oneness to nature. The sky isn't more important than the trees. The grass isn't more important than the sky because everything has to work together or else it doesn't work. And that's what I thought, I think really is what I'm trying to do is to say that uh, there's not one thing more important than another. It's all integration. And I'm look, one of the things I'm looking for is chaos. Now in nature, if you don't find chaos, you usually find man's manipulation. When you see chaos, it's biologically probably in order. You go up to Maine, you go up to Vermont, all the forests are lined up in trees and they plant. You, you go up where they're planting pine trees. It's all, you know, structure. And nature isn't that way at all. It's worked out its way for 10,000 years here in Florida. It's figured its way, it's figured its way out to make, it, to make it work. And I think that's important that I can tell if a place has been messed up by man, I think. I can just feel it. It's been messed up. What made you start using the, the big old Matthew Brady style um uh, well, box cameras. Well, the reason I, I started using large format was back in, uh, in the 80s, what I wanted to do was to make photographs large so people could feel like they were there. And they didn't have a technical skill in making camera equipment, 35 or two and a quarter, that had enough quality to make a large print. Because the, the human eye likes to see the detail. It doesn't like to see just a bunch of grain. At that period of time, that was the only way to make a big print was a big negative. 
And so, these things are huge. You you were like using your using like a swimming pool or something to develop. Oh yeah, that. yeah. My <laughs> first wash, the only way I could wash it when I first started was in the swimming pool. Wow. We have a much better system today. <laughs> we have a we have a sink that's about thirty eight foot long. Oh wow. Each tray is four foot by five foot. Five of those trays in a one four foot by seven foot tray for wash. So today it's, it's basically the same system that we've used, but I've made it uh, more human friendly of, of physically working with it. So we can do up to uh, eight foot by five foot matted prints right now. I want people to get close to it. These prints, when you get you get like an eight foot print, you get four feet away from it. People say I can't see the whole thing. I don't want you to see the whole thing because when you I was in architecture. I've been architect. We were taught how how we see because in architecture you want to be able to direct people with your building, the entrances and, and how architecture is made. So we were taught how we see. You only see about five degrees. People think they see this hundred thirty degrees. Well, you perceive a big thing, but you only see a very short, very. If two people are talking, you can almost barely see each other's eyes. So you get see a big print, you have to scan it, see it. And when you're in nature, that's how you see nature. You're scanning. You're looking. Of course, it's sometimes in the swamp, you're looking for an alligator or a snake or, you know, a bear or a pig or something. So you're always scanning to survive. So that's what a natural tendency is to scan. So that's where you have to, when you look at a picture that close, you have to scan it to see it. So that gives you the subconsciously feeling of being there. In tromping around in the swamp shooting photos, have you had any uh, memorable animal encounters? I've only had really, really one kind of interesting gator one. I was in our backyard behind the gallery, and uh, the Naples newspaper, were, I was out photographing, and Naples newspaper was doing an article on me. I was in the water with Cameron. Cameron was a photographer. The, the writer was in another canoe. He was actually in a canoe. We had the canoe there with all of our equipment and tripods and all that stuff. So I got through taking this picture, and then there was two trees that I usually take and go up, up to those two trees and used to kind of steady myself to get back in the canoe. So when I turned around, there was this 12-foot gator looking at me about four feet away. Yikes. And it gets your heart going, I guarantee you. And Oscar says to me, you know, Oscar was a, a poacher when he was young. He says, there's only two things you can do with a gator. You can either fight or run. And I'm standing in a foot of mud, barefoot. I, I can't out get, run a gator if I'm in mud. So I got a, a canoe paddle out and bashed him in the nose. And the guy blew up water about 10 feet in the air. First of all, I told Cameron, there's a gator here. Of course, he says, well, sure, there's gators there. You know, it's always gators. But when the thing blew up, I looked around, and somehow he had gotten in the canoe. Mm. <laughs> so, Probably levitated. <laughs> I, he, said, he, said, he doesn't know today how he got in the canoe. But yeah. the most scariest thing I had, I was up in Kissimmee um, doing a work on the uh, Kissimmee uh, restoration project, and a cow came around with her horns around my camera. What do you do with a 2,000-pound cow? It's not very bright. So I was, I didn't know what to do, so I just stood there, and she got, I guess, oh, I guess he's not going to be a problem. So she she didn't knock my camera over or anything. She she went away. But And the other ones was, were uh, some, in fact, actually, there's some big pigs out there. Pigs are scary. Yeah. They're, they're smart. I think everybody should carry a 38 with it. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> uh, those pigs are—they they, should—they're just like they—they they destroy. They're destroying the woods in Florida. The pigs are—they're they're a menace to Florida. They, yeah. they taste pretty good, but uh, you got to get rid of them. The, yeah. the, the legacy of Hernando de Soto, who yep. brought three hundred to Florida and they got loose. 
Well, you know, they had to bring food over that could reproduce. You're sort of famous for getting out in the swamp and then standing still for hours trying to get just the right shot. How do you, I can't stand still for like 10 minutes. How do you manage to, to achieve that level of tranquility or anticipation that keeps you from wanting to, <laughs> wanting to move or dance around well, or something? Well, like sometimes when it gets too long, I just lay down on the water. <laughs> uh, no, I, I take my camera bag and I hang it up on a tree. Got the camera all set in the tripod with film in it with a garbage bag over it. And I just wait and I just sit down in the water and rest. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's crystal clear water in the big cypress. It's drinkable. It's that that clean. Yeah. But now, since my stroke, I have a walker that I take out. Tuesday, I was out photographing in Mayaka. I was photographing this oak tree on, on the left and another oak tree on the right and some uh, palms and grass and field and clouds. I'm sitting there for about, oh... 45 minutes, and I was just about ready to get packed up, and the squirrel comes and jumps in right in front of my picture for me. So now I've become a, a they call it, uh, not a bird photographer, but, a, you know. Wildlife photographer. Wildlife <laughs> photographer. Because you can't, it's like Waldo, though. It's, it's kind of in the shadow. You you can hardly see it. But it was so cute. He sat there, so cute, perfect, right for me, and, and just posed. I took a shot, and uh, then he went off. Because now I'm using, uh, I'm using a Leica. 35 millimeter Leica a monochrome camera. It's a little bit lighter than the eight by 10. And I can still, with that camera, I can do an eight foot print. That's how good the cameras are getting today. And it's sharp as a tack. What do you do about mosquitoes? Cause I think that would be the thing that would make me move around a lot. What's <laughs> would be dealing well, with? I asked Chief Billy that. I said, what do you guys do for mosquitoes? He took it one and slapped his arm. That's how you do it. Just... <laughs> Fakahatchee is really, good place for mosquitoes though that's a good place once you usually get out in the deep water the fish are getting eaten all the all the larvae and the mosquitoes are very less very few you can go out to our gallery this time of year i doubt that you can find a mosquito people don't realize that if you have a, a system that's working right when you go from a, a dry season to a wet season that period of time you got mosquitoes after you got a wet season when it rains every day the water's flowing mosquitoes aren't bad at all Hmm. Probably worse worse in Miami than uh, Jacksonville than uh, here. After yeah. you um, you know first went into the swamp and this awakening you had in the the mid eighties you know that's thirty plus years ago. How have you come to see the swamp differently uh, over the years and differently now as an as an older man as as opposed to how you saw it in your um, middle aged years? Well, when I first started, I was scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but luckily, Oscar would teach me where the gators would be, where the snakes would be, what time of year that they were aggressive, what time of year they weren't aggressive. When the water's high, everything is scattered out. It's hard to even find a snake or a gator when it's, the water's high. So you, you learn about these things. Well, luckily, I had his, Oscar was able to teach me all these things. But it took me a while to jump in. And, of course, the first time he went out in the swamp, I, I, being a guy, you had to follow the guy, right? So I'm following him in the swamp, and I'm, I'm looking down. And the water's clear, and it's, it's like rock. I said, well, where's all the quicksand? <laughs> oh, no, this is a, a, a seabed. This is coral. I mean, it's limestone. Or it's basically, uh, I have pictures when it's dry. You can see all the stones. Uh, it's a whole different thing. You need to come out to the gallery and take a swamp walk. We take people out, uh, and they just say, wow. Some of the guys bring their girls out, you know, their girlfriends, and the girls are just, oh, frightened to death. And when they get through, they ask me when they can do it again. 
Mm. It, it's fun. I, I went out a swamp walk from your Achope gallery several years ago, and it's, it was a just a glorious trip. Like you said, the water was clear and cool. We saw all sorts of native orchids. Uh, we saw the only gator we saw was in your driveway. <laughs> and uh, jumping spiders, that kind of stuff. The one kind of odd thing that happened, you know, we were, well, all of us were kind of walking in water that was up to our thighs, and then all of a sudden it got deeper, and all the men started talking a lot higher. Because <laughs> <laughs> the water was so cold. cold. <laughs> you don't realize how cool the water is. It's really cool, even in the summertime. It's amazing. It was nice. It was it was in October, so it was a really good time to, to go for a swamp walk. You can October. find the location of Clyde's galleries on his website, ClydeButcher.com, and uh, that sounds like a, a wonderful experience. I look forward to taking someday myself how have you seen a bucket list yeah yeah yeah, (laughs) absolutely how have you seen the state's landscape change in your 40 years here well uh luckily big cypress has actually gotten better really they've blocked up some of the drainage canals on loop road they've actually made some uh more tunnels to get water through so it's flowing better the everglades national park i don't know sure what's what's happening there i mean they're they're putting these new, new bridges in but I'm not sure the water that's going to go underneath them is going to be clean enough. Like in Big Cypress, we're so lucky because we have what's called um, OK Slough north of us, which keeps all the pollutants uh, from coming down to Big Cypress. So Big Cypress is probably one of the one of the best healthy landscape in the United States. It's a great place. Now other places, you know, they're building and they're building buildings and they're oh, some of the rivers, you know, the, between the cattle and the septic tanks. Um, and the, the, one of the main problems we're having in Florida, northern Florida, is the water bottling companies sucking the water out of the springs. Silver Springs, which is one of the, I think is the largest magnitude spring, yeah, spring in the world. They say, well, it keeps going. There's going to be dry in, in 12 years. And the cattle, see, they moved the cattle out of Kissimmee because of the Kissimmee restoration. And they're moving it all up to that area. So the cattle people are sucking all the water out now. And the cattle people are putting all kinds of neat pollutants in the water. So... You know, Florida is not getting smaller <laughs> population-wise. So you have to understand that uh, more people, more more land goes, pollution comes up higher. And it's going to be a challenge to uh, keep Florida stable with all these new people because for some reason, well, I understand the reasoning, that they don't want to raise taxes. You know, it's a cheap place to live that attracts people. But by doing that, we could be, you know, really causing not enough money to be spent to save the Everglades. You killed the goose that laid the golden egg. You stopped the thing that attracted people in the first Mm -hmm. place. Your work as a photographer documenting how special Florida is made you into an advocate for keeping nature protected. What what was your sort of evolution on that? At what point did you say, I have to speak out? It's really strange. I got my information and my inspiration from Water Management District. Isn't that silly? Mm -hmm. In 1989 or 88, the guy that was in charge of water management was in my booth at West Palm. I had an art booth in. He saw this work on the in my booth, and he said, we're building a new building. We've got to have this in our booth so people can see what Florida is all about. Because people don't know what it's about. I mean, they have no idea what Florida is. Now, he wanted like 30, 40 by 60 frame prints. Wow. Good customer. Yes. Except he said he can't, he can't pay for it. Oh, bad customer. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought about it. For about a month, and I went and talked to him. I said, I'm, I'll, I, I have to do this because we have to teach people about Florida. So I did that whole, I think it ended up actually 
two buildings, I think it was like 60 prints, working with the people at water management. Now the scientists and everything in water management are pretty educated about what's happening. It's just the board members are the, are the people that create the problems. And they, the governor and, and, the, and the counties, they, they, tell, they tell the water management what they want. So the people actually decide what, what they're going to do. And everybody blames the Corps of Engineers on messing up the Everglades. They did a good job. The city, the county, the state asked the Corps to solve their water. They wanted to drain the Everglades. And they did an excellent job. Achieved their goal. <laughs> Unfortunately, it wasn't good for the Everglades, what, what no, the goal that, was. <laughs> that's not their job. Their job is to do what the government tells them to do. Mm-hmm. They're, they're a government agency. It's not, it's not a private business. It's not a, they do what they're told, and they do a really good job. So you better be careful what you ask them to do. <laughs> yeah, it's like a monkey's paw situation. So that commission from the Water Management District sort of got you into Yeah, it really got me into it because I got to talk to the scientists. I got to really see what was happening and get a real view of the problems. Because the, And then in, uh, I think it was 1997, uh, Colonel Rice was in charge of the restoration in Jacksonville and, and the uh, water management in Jacksonville. And he invited my wife and I up to Jacksonville to have a, have a discussion about what was happening in the Everglades. Mm-hmm. It's Terry Rice. who He just died about a month yeah. ago, I think. Yeah. Terry Rice was uh, really a cool guy. Over two days, 110 people gave us presentations. Wow. Because Nikki and I thought, well, this is going to be for the whole environmental people. It was just Nikki and I. So we learned a lot <laughs> <laughs> from the contractors to contract the uh, jobs out to uh, everything. And in fact, there was one guy up there that was uh, de- designing walls around Florida for global warming. Like that idea? <laughs> I no. don't think that would go over well with the beach folks. <laughs> no, but they, he was designing walls around like Fort Lauderdale, Miami. Mm-hmm. Because the Corps of Engineers, they can't make any political decisions. All they can do is physical decisions. Yeah. So they're designed. How would they make? How would they save these cities from the ocean, the ocean coming in? How, why did Terry set that up for for you guys to see for just the two why of you? See what was happening because I guess he felt that we were really interested in what was happening in the Everglades. And, and important as far as communicating it to the public, yeah. I guess. Yeah, because we communicate as much as we can to other people what we've, we've found from that. And I hope over the years it's helped, you know, it's um, helped what we've learned. You've picked up some pretty well-known fans along the way. Lawton Childs, I think, was a fan of your work, Burt Reynolds. Have you had any interactions with some of those fans where you're able oh. to say, hey, long as I got you, let me tell you about this important issue. Oh, yeah. In fact, I had a big discussion with Vice President Gore, too, about that, too. Uh, but yeah, you know, yeah. I, in fact, we had dinner up in the uh, in Tallahassee in the governor's mansion with Charles, uh, he and his wife, and he invited us out to his cabin. We I photographed his cabin for him, and uh, and his cabin. He invited me up to photograph his cabin. And I said, okay, my I had a partner in in California that had a cabin in the mountains. It was three thousand square feet. You know, <laughs> what am I going to photograph a cabin? But I got up there, and what he had done, and when they were building Highway Ten. There was an old squatter's house. It was probably probably 16 feet by 24 feet. That he actually uh, had to move it to his property, and he restored it to, to its natural state. So it was actually a an old cracker's house. It was really neat. Mm-hmm. So I photographed that for him. And uh, we had a big old roast out there. And, and Governor Graham and Senator Graham, uh, I've done a lot of work with him. 
he's still he's still trying to save Florida. It's too bad that his daughter it wasn't elected governor. I think we'd have been in better shape. Could be. How have you come back from your your stroke? It sidelined you for quite a while, didn't it? Well, I was in the hospital for five weeks, mm-hmm. and uh, I was look at these people in, in, in PT, and someday I think I, maybe I can walk again. You know, hmm. finally I got to the point where I can walk, and then I start using this walker. And I take my walker out, and I've had it out in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone through several bearings. <laughs> oh, bad. Walkers are designed for salt water, but it really has been able to get me out and do things. And I'm getting better walking, but it's you just have to keep going. I mean, I want to keep photographing. I mean, I've actually, I think I've done more photography since my stroke. I'm sure we have a number of amateur photographers listening to the podcast, especially with knowing that you were going to be on it. If you had one quick, easy, simple, something I can take into the field tomorrow, suggestion, tip, life hack for amateur photographers that you could share with them, what would that be? One of the things that you need to do when you're ready to take a picture is close one eye. Everybody sees things in three dimensions, but your camera doesn't see in three dimensions. It sees in two dimensions. So if you close one eye, you see this shot and you say, wow, that's not look at the depth. And you close one eye and say, oh, oh, well, so much for that depth. That's a really important thing to do. Now, in Florida, I think it's wide angle because everything is flat. So if you use wide angle, the trees in the foreground will be taller than the trees in the background. And that gives depth. To me, wide angle is very important. I, I shoot from my angle of view in Florida is from 90 degrees to 140 degrees. That's my angle of view. If you can believe that's almost 180 degrees. But it's not that easy to do. I had the first 20 millimeter retrofocus lens in the United States in 1962. So I've been using wide angle since 62. Because that's what you do in architecture. You photograph architecture, you usually use wide angle because you're close to the buildings. You want to get depth. Now, if you're shooting birds and gators, that's, that's up to, I don't care about that. I said, if you want to shoot birds and gators, go to a zoo. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's a good, better shooting with a telephone lens, birds and gators with a camera than it is a gun. So a lot of hunters now have changed to, to cameras instead of guns, which is nice. Every photographer I know has a story about the photo that got away, the one that they thought sure they were going to get and something went wrong, something went amiss. Do you have a story like that? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I had a story that, I mean, this one, this is really, I mean, I can't tell you how upset I was. There was an old dirt oil road that went south from Alligator Alley before the freeway was there. And I had gotten to a position, it was about 10 miles south of Alligator Alley, and I found a really great composition. And a storm was coming. I had a feeling there was going to be a rainbow because when you have a storm and the sun still so shining, you have a rainbow. So I had the camera all set up. I'm sitting there and I had the van. I was in the van for about two or three hours waiting for this to happen. Because I had the camera all set up. I had a ladder out there ready to go. And I had a plastic bag over the camera so keep it from getting wet. So I, I, the rainbow popped out. And I jumped out of the truck to get some film. I forgot the film. It was at home. <laughs> oh no! That was oh, no. I, tell you, I, I was upset. So that's the other life hack. Always remember your film. Yeah. <laughs> Pro tip: now it's yeah. little, little cards that go in the camera, or your, yeah. bat, or your battery. But uh, with large format, eight by ten, eleven, fourteen, twelve, twenty. One of the main problems is uh, depth of field. So you've got to shoot at very small apertures. And you, in black and white, I used a, most times an orange filter. So my exposures in bright sun is at one second. So nothing can move for one second. 
when you get into the woods, you're talking probably 30 seconds to five minutes. Oh my word. They, the shot I did in Loxahatchee, that's really great. It's, it was six minute exposure. What I did in the backyard was 10 minute exposure. The problem with that one was is that the camera was sinking in the mud during the exposure. Yeah, that could be a problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had the camera set up on a tripod. I just left it out there, put a garbage bag over it so when it rained, it wouldn't get wet. And I would go out the next morning because you had to do it just at sunrise. I did this for two weeks. I would take a shot and go in the dark room and process the film and it would move again. I took out concrete blocks, hung them from the tripod. Mm. I got a 10-foot cable release. Everything is connected in the swamp. So what I ended up doing, I figured out how to do it. I had to actually lay in the water. I swim up to the camera, turn the lens off, and then count to six minutes, 1,001, 1,002. And then swim up to the camera and turn the camera off. So I've, I've learned how to photograph with the large format. But now I like the idea of shooting at a 30th of a second. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> Large format is, was, was what I wanted to do and what I had to do back then. And it wasn't, probably if they had digital cameras that were good back then, I probably would have used a digital camera. But there was no good digital cameras back then. Like the first digital camera, I think, was one megabyte and it cost $25,000. <laughs> so it wasn't until the la- 2010, probably 2010, before the good cameras started coming out. I remember seeing my first digital camera. I was in journalism school at Auburn. It was probably 1996 or 1997. And they brought one in there and it looked like, you know, it was large, but I mean, one person could could certainly handle it. And the idea at that time that you could take pictures and somehow send them through the air to a computer a thousand miles away. And, and at that time, you know, this camera would have been probably $10,000. And it was it was like alien technology. It was really incredible now to the point where we all carry one with us uh, everywhere we go. I think it was a three, three megabytes, something like that. Yeah, I remember a guy from the AP came and did a thing on me and would go into the gallery and do his work on the laptop and stick it on the phone and send it off to him. The guy at the other end would say, well, could you do this? Change the, change the shot a little bit. So you go back and change the shot. Unfortunately, it's been, it's, it's sped the world up too much. When I used to do articles in, in magazines, I'd have to go in the dark room, make a print, send them an eight by 10 print. When they wanted to do an article, they would have to give me two weeks notice just to get a print to them. Now they call up in the morning and want, want the, the image in the afternoon. Clyde, <laughs> <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. Uh, continued uh, good health and recovery from the stroke. And uh, we'll be sure to check you out at ClydeButcher.com and on Facebook at Clyde Butcher as well. Well, Thanks, Clyde. I, one thing I like to say is people yeah. that have handicaps, get out of the house and do things. Photography is a great thing to do if you're handicapped. That's a great idea. Yeah. And should we also mention your picture books and calendars are, are a great Christmas gift for people? Oh, oh yeah. We've got the brand new uh, Everglades book we just got in about a month ago. Again, you can find all of that on the website, I'm sure, or just do a Google search for Clyde Butcher books. And uh, yeah, there's a, a great catalog of them. You own a couple of Clyde Butcher photographs, don't you? Don't you, Craig? Four of them, in fact. We're big fans. We saw his work at a uh, at an art show in Tampa mm-hmm. back in the I want to say late '80s, early '90s. My wife and I, and she was really taken by him, especially. And so, for I think for a Christmas gift, I waited until she was at work, and then I went back to the art show the next oh, nice. day. 
to try and and buy the one she liked the most. And he was sold out. And I thought, oh, well, I messed up. So a couple of weeks later, I called his his gallery. He wasn't down in Achope then. He was in uh, Fort Myers. He had a gallery in Fort Myers. And I said, do you have other copies of that same print? And he said, yeah, I have one left. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I'm going to drive down and get this thing and surprise her with it. So I made some excuse to her about what I was going to be doing that day and then drove down to Fort Myers. Yeah, I think I had a Mustang then. And um, <laughs> uh, I walk into the gallery. I had not asked what size he had. <laughs> and so I was thinking it would be one of these, you know, eight and a half by 11 things that he was selling sure. at the art show. No, this thing was ginormous. <laughs> it was huge, but it was the only one he had. So I, you know, my hand shook a little bit when I wrote the check because yeah. it was a lot more than I expected to pay. Yeah. And then I had to get Clyde to help me load it into the mm-hmm. car. It was sticking out of the windows on both yeah. sides. Yeah. But you had uh, it for it, how many years and you loved it. So it was a great It's great. Investment. It's over yeah. our it's over yeah. our fireplace mm-hmm. today. And and uh, you know, and Clyde gave me a tour of his studio and I wound up writing a story about him for the Times. The so <laughs> and, it all and worked you, out. And you wrote the piece of art off on your taxes as a result, right? And uh, you, gosh, I hadn't <laughs> thought of that. I, I should have checked on that at the time. <laughs> uh, I, here's here's a message with the holidays right around the corner. I, I'm a big fan of artwork and a big fan of original artwork and local artwork and like everyone else through covid so many artists like you mentioned craig they survive off of that art show circuit and they're in fort myers one week and then it's Kissimmee, and then it's west palm and then it's stewart and then it's delray beach and then it's st augustine that was all gone all of it was gone more and more artists are selling their work by themselves on this um you know, art festival circuit outside of the gallery system. They get an Instagram account and go direct to consumer. They have been devastated. So try and find some original artwork. The the prices start much uh, more reasonable than you might expect. You can find a great piece of art, local art, original art for a hundred bucks. If you do your research and you can do that uh, in any number of ways, start on Instagram or just Google searches. You can uh, follow me on Instagram at SeagreatArt. I post all kinds of original artwork. I've got original Florida artists, um, painters, Sarah LaPierre, Christine Lyons, Claire Kendrick. But from photography to painting to sculpture to mixed media, and and like you mentioned, Craig, and, and I'm the same way, these pieces, yeah, the the money you spend up front, sometimes it's like, ooh, I didn't want to spend that much. But if you can enjoy it every day for 20, 30 years, like I'll be able to with, with the paintings I've bought from these artists, it is well worth the investment and it, it becomes a memory and really part of your life, part of your home, part of your personal expression. I, I cannot recommend to people enough, forego michaels and home goods and target get an original piece of art help an artist yeah good suggestion welcome to florida